It's nice to see all of you. If you have a Bible, please open to Matthew chapter 18. And if you do not have a Bible, we'd love to get one into your hands. Raise your hand high and we will get one to you. Now, as you're uh, waiting for a Bible or joining me in Matthew chapter 18, I just want to remind, especially if you haven't been with us for a while or you are new to our church, we are taking a break from walking through the Gospel of John, and we are now in the seventh message of a series called Ecclesia, Features of a Faithful Church. And Ecclesia is the Greek word for, for church. And we have taken the last number of messages to look at this strange but amazing teaching that Jesus gives. Really, it's a picture of putting keys into the hands of local churches, keys of the kingdom. So you'll hear that talked about quite a bit today. But I recognize that with a, um, a church our size, and maybe you've recently joined us or are checking us out, and or if you haven't been part of the series, the topic today is is unique. And that topic is church discipline, or also called excommunication. And so um, we're going to see what Jesus teaches about that and why it exists. But I recognize that for many, perhaps you don't even know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. Or perhaps you've had experience or witnessed excommunication and it was horribly unlike Christ. And so our aim this morning is to understand why Jesus gifts and requires of the local church to practice excommunion. So with that, let me go ahead and and begin by reading Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, to set God's word before us, and we will go from there. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus is speaking. Scripture reads, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we confess that we are coming to a topic that for many is perplexing to understand, confusing. It's easy for our emotions to get ahead of what you say and to think that something is wrong or broken with your word. But we pray by your spirit, you would give us the mind of Christ, that you would give us hearts to understand Believe and receive all that your word says on this topic of church discipline. So, Lord, without further ado, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's people said, Amen. Um, I want to give you a definition to begin 
But first I want to say this. If, if you are in investigating Jesus, you're not a Christian, you're considering him. On the face of it, this may seem to be a very strange topic to come and listen. But I, I'm going to argue that this is, there's no better day for you to come and to hear about what it means to be the body of Christ than this message this morning. And, and I think that this message this morning will give you all that you need to know to appreciate and treasure Jesus Christ as your Savior and to leave this place as a child of God. So let's begin with a definition. You've already heard me say excommunication. You've heard me say church discipline. Those are synonyms talking about the same thing. What is it? Excommunication or church discipline is the church removing a willfully unrepentant and therefore spiritually dangerous person from the Lord's table and membership of the church. So again, what is excommunion? What is church discipline? It's the church removing a willfully unrepentant person from the Lord's table and membership of the church. There's a definition. We'll come back to it a few times across the message. But before we get into it, though, I want to paint two pictures for you. There are two pictures on opposite ends of the spectrum. It would be nice if I could say they're hypothetical, but they're not. They are all too common. And, and one of these two, or maybe both, resonate with your past experience with churches. So on the one, I want you to imagine a church. You don't need to imagine they exist. Imagine a church that thinks that when they read Matthew 18 and all the rest that the Bible has to say about excommunication, they think that's harsh. That is ungracious. And so they simply ignore Jesus' teaching on it. There's a blind spot in their vision, and for some reason when they come to Matthew 18, that passage doesn't exist in their Bibles. Oftentimes that happens because that's the perspective of the leadership, the pastors and elders and whatever the titles are of whoever's in charge, which then tends to mean that the congregation is never exposed to Jesus' teaching on this topic, and they likely don't know what it is. What are you talking about? When you hear church discipline, that doesn't sound very nice. Well, the other end of the spectrum is the exact opposite. It's the people who love church discipline in a vindictive, vendetta, vengeful type way. Uh, where people are disciplined and kicked out of the church for the pettiest of issues. And even somebody who is struggling with sin asks for help in that sin, repents of that sin, is still removed from the church body. The church is the wild west of people just disciplining each other, gossip and slander, and really, the congregation itself is just a band of Pharisees under the cloak of the gospel, even though they don't have the gospel. What do I mean? You see, we're trying to discern from Scripture what the features of a faithful church are. And both of these churches are not being faithful to Jesus, no matter what their intentions are. Both churches in this situation are in danger of having the lampstand removed the way that Jesus speaks of removing lampstands in Revelation 2 and 3. Why? Because neither, neither church is protecting or promoting the gospel. Because church discipline 
both protects and promotes the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our focus this morning is on being a faithful church which understands and exercises the key of church discipline. We don't want to follow in either error, either side of the ditch or the road, so to speak, of of assuming or pretending it's not in the word, nor practicing it harshly and wrongly in a way that dishonors Christ. Now, I've touched on this topic of church discipline a few times already in this series, as we've recently looked at baptism and the Lord's Supper and more. But I also preached a three-week series on the topic of church discipline two years ago in February of 2020. And I would encourage you to go and listen or re-listen to that series, in part because what we're doing this morning is not a mere repetition of what we did back then, but adding to it. And they all fit together. So if you have the time, I'd encourage you to make it and listen to those messages. But with that as we want to see what it means to be a faithful church following Jesus in the proper and right exercise of discipline, here's the message this morning. As we fit together what the Word says, it comes to us in four parts. You can take a picture of the screen if you don't have time to write down these points. Here they are, four of them. Number one, the keys of the kingdom, the what and why of church discipline. And we will hone in on verses 17 and 18. Then we'll move into the second point, asking the when and who of church discipline. And that'll take us to the zoom out to the broader text I just read. And then to point number three, the keys of the kingdom, the how of church discipline. I think this will be a surprising churn for many of us. And for that, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. And then we will briefly end our time. Once again, looking at the why of church discipline, but this time from the vantage point of an uncommon text on this topic, and that's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. So that's how we're going to unfold the message this morning. Let's jump right in. Point number one, the keys of the kingdom, the what and the why of church discipline. What is it and why do we do it? Matthew 18, right in the middle of what Jesus is saying, beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, if he, this is the unrepentant person, refuses to listen to them, this is the two or three witnesses plus the offended party, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. For truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want us to think of a question together. And the question is this. How important is the church to Jesus Christ? Well, the church is so important that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took on human flesh, became incarnate to live for His church, to die for His church, to rise for His church. Jesus 
lived in our place. He went to the cross to take our sins upon himself and he bled for us to wash our sins away and atone for our sins. And then to rise from the grave, to rise for our justification, to give us his righteousness by faith. That's how important the church is to Jesus. And so for Jesus to be saying these words right here in Matthew 18, that there's actually occasion when a local church gathered together removes somebody from the church, that's significant. But pause for a moment before we, dump, we jump into this idea. We need to ask, if the church is so important to Jesus, what is Jesus' work in us and for us now? And for that, I can think of no better text than Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Now, this is a familiar marriage passage and the call to husbands to love their wives in a certain way, but, to, but listen to what this text says about Jesus. This is Jesus' opinion about the church. This is what Jesus thinks of his, the church. This is what Jesus does for us. Matthew 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives. Now here it is. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, Jesus' work on the cross is not just to save a people for himself, to gather a bride for himself, to make a body for himself, as it were. Jesus' work on the cross, according to Ephesians 5, is to actually do something for the people, do something to the people, and that is change us. And these words in Ephesians 5 aren't just future words for glory. They are for us now. When we become regenerate, when we believe in Jesus, when we confess our sins and repent and entrust ourselves to Christ, we are filled with his spirit and he begins the process of change in that moment. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. And so the process of sanctification is to become what we already are in Christ. And as Ephesians 5 says, that is a pure and spotless bride. And this is a collective metaphor. The metaphor of bride imagery in Scripture is the gathered saints in total as the bride of Christ. A pure and spotless bride, washed clean by Christ's blood. His atonement for our sins, removing our guilt and our shame. Our sin, as far as the east is from the west, that's what Jesus has done for us. And so, as believers, both individually and corporately, we are to pursue being what we already are in Christ. We're to pursue being blameless now and without blemish now. We're to pursue being robed in splendor and holiness now. That's not just something that we wait for in the future. It's now. Why? Because we love him because he first loved us. 
Jesus loves the church. The Father loves the church. The Spirit loves the church. The church is the new covenant people. We are the eternal people of God and all the saints of all times brought into the new covenant now that Christ has risen from the grave. Jesus loves his church to be a pure and spotless bride. And this, my friends, is why excommunication or church discipline is a key feature of a faithful church. Jesus has authorized in Matthew 18 and other places, he has authorized the local church to remove those from the fellowship of the Lord's table. That's why it's called excommunion, excommunication, to remove from communion and participation in the church whose lives deny the gospel they confessed at baptism. That's what happens. Why? Why church discipline? Jesus intends his church on earth to look like his church in heaven. Namely, those saints who've preceded us to glory. If you were to sit down and read the New Testament, you would discover that there are seven or so different key places that concern this broader topic of church discipline. We don't have time to walk through them. But to summarize them for you, what we discover is that sometimes a person is removed immediately from the church due to the nature of their sin. Other times, there's one or two warnings, and then they're removed. And other times, as Matthew 18 implies, there is a longer patient, multi-step process in place. We would also discover this. Sometimes, when a person is removed from the church, they are still considered a brother or sister in Christ. And other times, as is the case right here in Matthew 18, the designation brother is removed, and the church now considers them a Gentile tax collector. It's another way of saying outside the new covenant community. So the designation brother that they receive um, corporately at baptism, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that testimony they give at baptism, their church can no longer affirm in Matthew 18. And so Jesus tells us to treat them, to consider them as a Gentile tax collector, no longer part of the covenant community. And since the Lord's Supper is the sign of being in the new covenant, that's why it's called excommunion, withholding from communion, because they don't have access to the table that shows they're in the new covenant. What this tells us, and we'll see this more in the next point, is that church discipline is case by case. But when we fit them all together, here's what we see. All the texts together at root, because we need to think about, well, what is someone church discipline for? At root, all church discipline comes down to one thing, a person refusing to turn away from their sin. That's it. It's, it is a matter of willful unrepentance. And therefore, the church is obligated by Christ to remove them from the church. But why? It's because Jesus is 
concern is for the holiness of his bride and the health of his body. So when a person is unrepentant and unruly in word or deed, Jesus commands us to excommunicate that person. Why? To guard our gospel unity. To guard our gospel witness and by God's grace to bring that person to repentance and restored to the church. Restoration is always the goal with church discipline. Now, I said just a moment ago that at root, all church discipline is rooted in a willingness to not repent. The fruit of a church not exercising church discipline. So what happens if we're like that first example of the church that ignores church discipline? The fruit is always division. Scripture speaks different ways. Sometimes it's a false teacher whose teaching spreads like gangrene and rot. Or other imagery in the Bible is, is, is leaven, leavening the whole lump, making the people sinful, as it were. False teaching, false ideas. For example, Titus 3.10. Paul says in Titus 3.10, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's how serious division in the body is. It could be false teaching. It could be gossip and slander. It could be any manner of things, but Jesus is concerned with the unity of his bride and his body. And when church discipline is not exercised, it leads to the disunity and unhealth of his body and bride. If we're to look at those seven passages, we would see that sometimes the Bible speaks of wolves who try to come in from without or even rise up from within the church itself. This is Acts 20. That there's wolves who will seek to devour and scatter the flock through false teaching and licentious lives. The Bible also speaks of false converts in the body. These are people who think they're believers, but in actuality are not. Think about 1 John. They, they went out from us because they were not of us. So false converts are like what Jesus says in the parable about the seed that falls in the soil and it sprouts up real quick. So they, they say gospel things and they do gospel things and we think that they're gospel people, but then the sun comes out and, and the temptations of the world shine on them and they end up denying Christ. So the, there's false converts in the midst of a church. So there's wolves, false converts. But then we also can infer from Jesus' teaching that there's prodigals. That there will be among us brothers and sisters who are truly regenerate. And they will be with us forever in glory. But as a prodigal, for a season, they are gripped by unrepentant worldliness. And they love their sin more than Jesus and we are obligated as a church to remove them from the membership of the church. So you see, whatever the case, the idea of, of what is church discipline and why do we do it, whatever the case, Jesus deeply cares about his bride and he doesn't want people messing with his bride. 
Jesus deeply cares about the health of his body, and he doesn't want any virus to come into his body to create sickness and death. Whatever the case of discipline, whether it's with a believer or an unbeliever, whether we're not really sure, whether it's instantaneous or over many, many months, if not longer, Jesus cares deeply about the purity and splendor of his bride, her reputation, her health, her witness, and his glory. That's why we church discipline. So that, that's why, at the beginning, the, the other end of the spectrum, that vindictive church, they are not representing Christ or the grace of his gospel. Uh, two years ago, when I preached the message on church discipline, the message was called the grace of discipline. And there I suggested that what the Bible tells us is that when we pursue Matthew 18, when we pursue somebody who is trapped in sin, that is an errand of grace. The default is, judge not lest ye be judged. What Jesus is talking about, don't be a hypocritical judge, right? Remove the speck before you take out the log. But you still take out the log. Or no, yes, that's right. That's correct. Read it to see if I'm correct. But whatever the case is, that when we discipline, it is a time of tears. It is a time of grace. It is a time of sorrow. and It is a time of trusting in Christ. You see, Jesus also has concern for the hard-hearted person. When a church allows a person to live in sin, when a church allows a person to have bad theology and be a heretic and doesn't do anything about that, we are not loving that person. We're not honoring Christ and we're not protecting the body. So when we pursue that person, the reason it's an errand of grace is because we're telling that person, hey man, these things that you are saying or doing, your theology or these things that you are not repented of, that is not keeping in step with the Spirit or in keeping with the gospel. In other words, when a person is removed, that is one of the greatest acts of love that we can do for them to, by God's grace, bring them to their senses so that they can repent. So it's not a negative thing. It is a good thing. It is a necessary thing, and it's something that Jesus requires. So no, excommunication is not a vengeful and vindictive enterprise. Its aim is always protective, protecting the gospel. Its aim is always corrective, to correct gospel errors. Its aim is always restorative, back to the gospel. That's why it's always an errand of grace. And why does Jesus require us to do it? Why did he invent it? Because he cares about you. And he cares about the person next to you. And in front of you. And behind you, he cares about his church. He cares about his church more than we do. He cares about the wayward person more than we do. And he cares about his glory more than we do. That's why Jesus requires us to do it. And this then leads us to the second point of the keys of the kingdom. The when and who of church discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, one more time. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
And if he refuses to listen to them, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So the question is, when do we discipline? The answer, it depends. In the case of Matthew 18, discipline fully happens finally when the person's removed from the church. But building on the last point and the different um, summary points I gave you, church discipline, when do we do it? It's a case-by-case, heart-by-heart situation. So as I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 5 speaks of immediate expulsion on the spot. We looked at Titus 3.10 a moment ago, and that's one or two warnings. Here in Matthew 18, Jesus gives four steps of increasingly concentric circles of people brought into the process until it finally becomes the whole church to call a person to repentance. In all all these passages, we see that excommunication is situation specific. It requires much wisdom, patience, and prayer. But here now is where we're going to take a turn into some new waters as a church family of discussing this topic together. And that is who. Who is ultimately responsible for church discipline? Once again in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to that small group, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to, let him be to you all, plural you, as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you all, whatever you all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The yous are plural. Now, you may notice that Jesus is repeating himself from what we saw a few weeks ago with Peter's gospel confession. Do you remember Matthew 16, 19? The disciples are present. Jesus and Peter are having a conversation. Peter becomes the first to make the public gospel profession to which Jesus responds in sixteen nineteen, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, keys, of course, lock and unlock doors. They open and shut. That's the connection of binding and loosing. To open a door is to loose the lock. It's to open it. To shut the door and lock it is to bind it closed. But open and shut what? The kingdom of heaven. And you see the connection in Matthew 16, 19, Jesus talks about binding and loosing. And here in 18, 18, he talks about binding and loosing. The keys are for admitting and dismissing. Now, the parallel passage, you need to see, we haven't looked at this yet together. The parallel passage you need to see to understand binding and loosing is in John chapter 20, verse 23. So please join me there so that you can see it. John chapter 20, verse 23. Jesus has risen from the grave. 
He has appeared to the disciples in the room. It's locked. And here's what he says to them in John 20, verse 23. This is also plural. He's speaking to the group. This is, Jesus says in verse 23, If you, if you all, forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you all withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What's going on? Binding and loosing, forgiving and withholding, parallel passages in Scripture. What is taking place here? Now, we've already looked at this, but just by way of reminder, don't misunderstand this. We cannot save or unsave anybody. The church has no power or authority to do that. Only God himself does. The language and grammar of the text is that we, in essence, are recognizing what Jesus has already done, and then we are publicly affirming what Jesus has done. So you profess the gospel, and you come and you tell the church that you're a believer now, and we hear you profess it, and yeah, that you've had the gospel right. We recognize that Jesus has already saved you, so we're obligated to open the door to the kingdom. We don't save, we don't unsave, because you can't be unsaved. So to harmonize these passages, binding and loosing, forgiving and withholding forgiveness, to loose or open the kingdom of heaven is to recognize the forgiveness a person already has in Jesus because they profess the gospel and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So that's to loose. That's the good thing. To bind is the negative one, is that's to keep the door of the kingdom locked, so to speak. It's to withhold affirming forgiveness. Why? Because the church has no confidence the person has the gospel and has been saved by Jesus because they don't have Matthew 16 in their life. So Matthew 16 is about loosing or unlocking or opening door of the kingdom with right gospel profession. And Matthew 18 is about binding or shutting or locking the door of the kingdom because someone, well, in the case of Matthew 18, is a Gentile tax collector because of the way they live. Don't misunderstand when I say lock the door as if to say there's a closed sign put on the door. The goal, of repent, the goal is always repentance. It's always restoration. But it's to help this person see, friend, what you are saying and what you are doing and what you're unwilling to do to follow Jesus, you are, your life is preaching a false gospel. And we have no confidence in your salvation. If you were to die in this moment, we could not perform your funeral and say, this man clearly loved Jesus, followed Jesus, was humble, repentant, and teachable. No, we couldn't have that confidence. So binding and loosing is connected with forgiving, withholding forgiveness that we recognize. We just see the fruit. Jesus is the one who creates the root, the heart. But again, I ask, Matthew 18, to whom is Jesus giving authority to excommunicate? So turn back, because I'm going to have you look at your Bible. Right here in Matthew 18, who is Jesus giving the authority to? The plural you of verse 18, the binding, y'all binding, is the church of verse 17. It is the local church's responsibility in Christ to excommunicate. Let me say that again. It is the local church's responsibility to 
excommunicate. And that's given by Christ. It is not the Pope. It is not a college of cardinals. It is not a group of bishops or anybody over a local body of believers. It is not even the elders alone who exercise church discipline. No, Jesus says it is the church. Now, we have seen that Jesus is not saying all there is to say about the church. He's building the foundation. There is a whole theology of pastor elders to come later in the New Testament. So we would fit this together by saying the church as led by her pastors and elders together hold the keys to excommunicate. So you can't miss this. Jesus is clearly indicating it is the whole local church's responsibility to exercise church discipline. And to say it as plainly as I can, this means Jesus expects every Christian to be in a position to be able to exercise the key of church discipline. That is the logical conclusion of what Jesus says here. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not in a position to partner with a local church to exercise church discipline. And that then leads us to the third point, how, the how of church discipline. And this also is going to be new territory for us. Please join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, so that you can see that I'm not making this up. This is one of those passages that in your personal Bible reading, if you're like me, you tend to gloss right over. It seems not that significant, even though it is the inspired word of God. Our question now to Jesus and his word is, okay, Jesus, you've, you've, you've told, the, told us that the local church is responsible to exercise church discipline, but how do we do that? Okay, we're going to look at this one specific way. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, our focus is verse 6. Paul is writing, and he says, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient and everything. While it is possible that in the broader context of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it's possible that Paul's talking about the guy from 1 Corinthians 5 who got excommunicated. It's, it's possible. I kind of think it is. But regardless, whoever this person is, he was excommunicated by the church and now by God's grace has been brought to their senses. He's repented. And now Paul is having to write to the Corinthians and say, well, welcome him back. Open the door. Bring him home. Re-extend the right hand of fellowship. Bring him back to the table of the new covenant community. So 2 Corinthians 2 is about restoration of someone who was disciplined. But here's the detail. There is a detail in verse 6 about how we do the final step of church discipline from Matthew 18, 17. Listen again to verse 6. The punishment by the majority 
is enough. What does that mean? Okay, clause by clause. Punishment refers to the excommunication and exclusion from the church to which Paul's saying, bring him back, which is what he says at the end. It's enough. The person needs to be restored because they have repented. Welcome them home. But do you see the middle phrase? This is what you gloss. This is what I gloss. This is what I just speed past. But this is where we are going to be good theologians and strong Bible readers and pause and now take a microscope rather than a telescope and go into the text. What is the middle phrase? By the majority. And by the way, that's what it means in Greek. That's why we're reading it in English. This then, this phrase brings us back to the who and the how of excommunication and exercising the keys of the kingdom of binding and loosing. How, Paul, does church discipline happen? Well, we see from his words, from 2 Corinthians 2.6, church discipline happens by the majority. This brings us to a focal point. Um, what is a majority? Okay, to state the obvious, we can all answer that question, but hold on, just, just think about it. What's a majority, Paul? And this is what it means in the Greek, as it does in the English. Same thing. A majority is more than half of a defined group. You can't have a majority if you don't have a defined group. If there's just no boundaries or limits and there's just this nebulous sea of people who just goes on forever, that's not a, that's not a defined group. You, a majority has a line around it. And in that line are people, or a circle, and there's a majority, more than half. I know that's obvious, but we just have to pause and think about what the Bible is saying to us. Paul's indicating that a majority exercise discipline to remove a person from the church, and now that majority needs to welcome that person back into the church. But doesn't that beg another question? Yes, it does. What do you have to do to determine a majority? I mean, this it's just should be pretty obvious to us. To determine a majority, whatever your method is, whether it's raising hands, which Scripture speaks of, a verbal I or yes, or something else, Whatever the method you have, counting stones and sticks, I don't care what you do when you have a defined group of people and you're trying to count who the majority is, that is called a vote and nothing else. That's what it is. This is one of a number of places in Scripture where clearly and unequivocally voting in the body is taking place. We see it when Paul and Barnabas are separated for the work of ministry to get sent on missions. Uh, we see some other missionary texts about that as well. Paul is indicating that a majority of the people in the church of Corinth made a decision that was somehow counted, most likely by the pastor elders, and then collated, counted, and then determined. The church in Corinth voted to excommunicate. And I encourage you to see if there was any other possible meaning of what it means by by the majority. 
This is what happens about being good theology. Theology is meant to be applied. It's meant to be thought about and then woven into the life of a local church. And here's one of the number of texts where we see the church counting. And that begs another question. And it's this. How do you know who gets to participate in a vote? Right? So, so th- this, again, is where we do applied theology. First um, Corinthians, I think it's chapter 14. No, it's chapter 15. Paul talks about how unbelievers are going to be present every time the church assembles. So here's a question f- for you. Do unbelieving friends and family get to vote on the excommunication of a believer? Or do they get to vote on the uh, reunion of a now repentant believer? I see heads shaking. No. The ans- your, your intuition is correct. And you know intuitively why. Because they're unbelieving friends and family. They haven't done Matthew 16. They haven't professed the gospel. The church hasn't heard their gospel profession and brought them home. And so when you ask, how does a church know who gets to vote? Uh, The church also speaks of visiting Christians who are with the church for a season. They belong to another church and then they're going to leave. Do they, if they're visiting for one day, just because they're a believer, do they get to vote on excommunication or reunion? Again, you intuitively know the answer is no, they do not. Why? Because the church has to know who is in their defined community. That's how voting takes place. So this takes us back then to Matthew 16, as I mentioned just a moment ago, where Jesus authorizes the church to affirm gospel professions. Right? If you remember back to that sermon a few weeks ago, it's not that we hear someone's gospel profession and then the regular pattern is to baptize them. And then say, so happy you're baptized. Welcome to the family. Now go out to the wolves. Right? A local church is a sheep pen where we bring people into the family. We know who's a sheep and who's not. And we know who belongs to each other. That's, what, that's the effect of Matthew 16. So let me say this plainly. A church knows who can vote because they know who holds the keys with them. I say plainly because that was Matthew 16. And therefore Matthew 18 Because discipline is binding and loosing, in this case binding or keeping someone withheld or um, still in their sins, as it were. A church knows who can vote because they know who's holding the keys with them. And the church knows who holds the keys with them because that church exercised Matthew 16 to hear gospel professions and saying, yes, you've got the gospel. Welcome home. Welcome into the family. So I've said it before. I'm saying it again, whether it's the underground church in Iran or China, some small house church of two or three families, or if it's the multi-site mega church in San Diego with skinny pants and scarves, the size of the church, the location of the church, the situation of the church, the culture of the church, the ethnicity of the church does not exempt the church from being faithless to Jesus' teaching. All bands of believers, house church to mega, are required by Christ to do Matthew 16 and to do Matthew 18, and in the case of 2 Corinthians 2, to have some mechanism in place, some mechanism in place 
to be able to know who is in and out, who is eligible to vote, and therefore be removed from the church, welcomed into the church. Every church is to have some process in place for the keys of the kingdom to be exercised. Every church is to have some mechanism in place to know who is responsible and accountable to cast a vote in a matter of church discipline. So I think it's going to look real different to a three-family church in Iran than the multi-site church in San Diego. But it's supposed to exist because it's Bible. It's faithfulness to what Jesus says. So here's an implication for you before we move into the fourth and final point. Jesus expects you to put yourself in fellowship with other believers who will exercise the keys to welcome you into the family and then with whom, if need be, you exercise the keys to remove someone from the body. What I've been trying to labor to show and connect between gospel confessions and baptisms and the Lord's Supper, communion and excommunion, is that these are all related under the umbrella of the keys of the kingdom. And it's not the Pope, it's not the elders alone, it's not the presbytery, it's the church who has responsibility for these. And it begs the question, how do we know? And for example, 2 Corinthians 2.6, by the majority, has significant implications of how a church actually does that in its life. And this then leads us to the fourth and final point, revisiting the first point, the why of church discipline. The why of church discipline. We return to where we started. Listen again to Ephesians 5. Let's be reminded of what Christ thinks and is doing for us. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus gives the local church the right and responsibility to protect and promote the gospel. He doesn't send angels to do it for us. He doesn't only establish the pastor elders to do it. But we collectively, the local church, have the right and responsibility from Jesus to protect and promote the gospel in the life of the church so that Ephesians 5 can be true among us. Everything that we do is for the splendor of Jesus' bride, us. And Jesus amazingly uses us to cultivate that splendor among each other, which includes, again, hearing gospel professions, welcoming people to the church family through baptism, welcoming to the Lord's table where we commune to each other the sign of the new covenant, and if need be, church discipline, excommuning someone from the church. It's our responsibility. And each of these features are connected like train cars. They pull one another along. And each is how Jesus builds and protects the church with his gospel. You simply cannot understand 
gospel professions and baptism and communion and excommunion if they are divorced in your mind from each other. Because in Scripture, they're connected and inseparable. But we tend to atomize them and treat them as different things, but they are all connected. Each is a gospel emblem of the new covenant community. You see, so when you become a Christian, here's what happens. You actually get a job description. Uh, Many things, which include you need to walk to the local household of God and get your house key to become part of that family. And I think this is simply amazing. Jesus doesn't need to use us in this way. He could do everything through angels, but he chooses to use me and you and every gospel band of believers across the globe. That we have responsibilities in Christ for each other. So friends, membership in the church is meant to be meaningful because it bears responsibility from Christ himself. So many Christians go about their lives without any awareness or any concern of what Jesus expects of them where the local church is assumed to be an optional and occasional add-on if you feel like it or it fits your schedule, rather than, first sermon, the centerpiece and goal of human history on into eternity. Membership is how we know who holds the keys together. Call it what you want. It's how we protect and promote the gospel together as a congregation, And that's because we're a gospel people with gospel responsibilities inside and outside the church. We help people confused about the gospel get clarity. We guard the gospel from those who seek to destroy it, wolves. And we guard each other in the gospel with grace, helping each other know and follow Jesus. And as a final word, to those of you who are considering Christ, far from moving you away from Jesus by hearing about church discipline, I think that what Jesus teaches here should draw you to the foot of his throne of grace. Because here you're seeing how much Jesus loves his people. To die for his people and to purify his people. This is not about sinlessness. Because scripture teaches the doctrine of sanctification, that we will have remaining sin until Christ brings us home. That's the vindictive and vengeful bad picture. But this is about being willfully unrepentant. But friend, Jesus can give you repentance. His blood will wash away all of your sins, past, present, and future. He invites you to himself. All who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. And saved and not just cast out, but saved and brought into a family to help you know and follow Jesus, a family unlike anything else the world cannot give and can never provide. Jesus is willing to wash away your sin. Jesus wants you part of his family, his bride, his church, his body. And you enter into the protective graces of a band of believers who have agreed together on our doctrine, covenanted together to know and follow Jesus Because we're the church. Friends, there is a lot more to what it means to be us than we realize. Praise God for it. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. As 
still unsettling or confusing as the doctrine of excommunication may be, we pray that we would both think and feel the way that you do about the truths of your word. That we would believe you more than what we feel or think. And that your word would have its way among us. So Lord, now we pray that you would pour forth praises from our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand for this song. And then Elder Scott will come up and lead us to the Lord's table after this song.